In the ESV study Bible, Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is given a title, The Final Judgment. In the NRSV, it is The Judgment of the Nations. And in the NIV, The Sheep and the Goats. So clearly there's a contrast that's being made, and clearly there is an interpretive lens applied. Now, Matthew didn't give a title to this section of his gospel, although there is definitely authorial intent. But what would happen in our understanding of it if we titled the passage An Invitation to a New Way of Life? Given what we know of all of Scripture, bearing in mind our just-completed series on the book of Philippians, and bearing in mind that what I've just read has a great deal of resonance with the Sermon on the Mount, it might be helpful if we took into consideration what the two different kinds of people in the passage were actually doing. How does the broadest interpretive lens deepen our understanding of Jesus as a loving king and judge? In his book, How God Became King, N.T. Wright urges us to see that the heart of the Gospels is to tell the story of how God became king on earth as in heaven how the king of the Jews became King Jesus. He proposes that the four Gospels present themselves as, number one, the climax of the story of Israel. The Old Testament ends, but obviously the story is incomplete. And I think that we would all agree that the New Testament picks up where the Old Testament left off. So, Because Israel's story is important because the creator of the world chose to work through the people of Israel to redeem the world. Number two, the Gospels tell the story of Jesus as the story of Israel's God. So what then is Israel's God like? There's so many things that we could say here, but there's two primary themes that I want to bring to our attention. One is the Exodus story, and the other is the significance of the temple. In both cases, what is stressed is that God is with his people. God accompanies his people as they flee flee captivity and as they journey in the wilderness, in a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And later, when the temple is built, God's presence with his people fills it. However, the story of Israel's God is also the story of a faithless and disobedient people, as our psalm today remembers. The temple itself is desecrated and destroyed, and the temple is rebuilt, yet the people's worship is so deeply flawed that God abandons the temple. The temple comes to symbolize God's absence. The Old Testament prophets are filled with messages of God's desire for his people to repent and return to a loving relationship with him. Our Ezekiel passage is an example. 
God is fed up with the self-seeking, neglectful behavior of the shepherds, the kings, the leaders, the very people who were meant to protect and care for his people have instead led them further astray. Yahweh says, I myself will intervene on behalf of my people, the ones who've been treated unjustly. I will seek the lost, the hungry and distressed. I will bring them back and care for them. So the story the Gospels are telling is how Yahweh comes back to his people at last in the person of Jesus. So the four Gospels tell the story of the climax of Israel's story and of Israel's God and how that God, number three, then in the action of Jesus the Messiah, launches the people of God, a renewed people. It is through people, his people, that Jesus is king on earth as in heaven. The parables that Jesus tells, the examples of his life and teaching are given as models of how the people of God are to be Yahweh's agents, going out just as Yahweh described himself in Ezekiel, seeking, rescuing, caring for one another. The Gospels tell of the life and witness of communities committed to Jesus' reign in their lives. They tell of how Jesus ushered in a new world order within which a new way of life was not only possible, but was mandatory for Jesus' followers. The rule of the King of the Jews has been established over the nations. His followers are therefore to go and put that rule into effect. This means that the ways of power and prestige are reversed and that caring for one another, forgiving others, is non-negotiable and foundational, and so much more. Naturally, this new rule of Jesus as King in the Gospels themselves and in contemporary life, number four, shows the clash of the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. Kings, presidents, Rulers of this earth weaponize power in whatever form is needed to achieve what they want. The followers of Jesus have a deeper instinct, the way of a servant. Those who seek to live under Jesus' rule need not worry, though. Jesus will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to enable the work of his kingdom to continue through the Spirit-led work of his followers. Jesus' followers bear witness to truth as they use words and actions to reflect God's wise ordering of the world, shining light into darkness, bringing judgment and mercy where it is needed. So how does all this bear on our passage from Matthew 25? I came across a sermon on our gospel passage that was posted on the internet, and it was entitled, Eschatology is the engine for ethics. Eschatology, the study of the end, the last things, the future, is the engine for ethics, the story of how we live. The preacher said that our last day should drive 
our everyday, and that's true. However, as that sermon went on, its engine was the future, final judgment. And I found myself increasingly asking, how do I, how do we live right now in an inaugurated eschatology, God's putting the world to rights future in the present, as N.T. Wright defines it. Jesus is already ruling the world, and our passage helps us understand that judgment is brought forward into our now. Christ's kingship is not far off in the future. God's mission in the world is happening right now through us. If we place the full impact of the message in the future, we miss its power for the now because the gospel passage raises questions of love and justice. We are to be the kind of just, loving people who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring love and justice, first of all, to one another, fellow believers, and then, of course, to the world. This is the loving invitation of King Jesus' rule on earth as in heaven. God is a lover of justice, and God is the judge. So even as we hear of God's final judgment, our focus needs to be on our calling. Jesus' life, teachings, and ministry were to show us how to be kingdom people. We herald that new kingdom, proclaiming in our thoughts, words, and deeds that Jesus is already enthroned as king. Can we hear the summons to obedience in Matthew 25? Will we heed the call to be witnesses to the rule of Jesus today, bringing heaven to earth? Christ is the one who does the separating, now and in the future. The justice Jesus calls us to is a core human vocation. Our participation is for the enhancement of the human community. If we are among the strong, our resources are mobilized for the well-being of the community. When we are weak, we receive from one another. Russell Moore, in his very challenging recent book, Losing Our Religion, says, We are among those whose identities are formed first, before anything else, by an actual cross by Christ and him crucified. No person or ideology or movement short of Christ himself can claim the totality of our identities. We can work with people, even those with whom we disagree, on matters issue by issue, but we don't belong to them. So as I pondered the scripture passages for today, from Ezekiel 34, Psalm 95, 1 Corinthians 15, and Matthew 25, I kept wondering, how can I illustrate what they are all getting at? And a story began to form within me. The Way. Once upon a time, a very large group of people from just about every single nation on earth gathered at the headwaters of a river. 
They'd heard that the world's most famous storyteller would be there. They came from far and wide to hear him, and here he was. In one way, he looked pretty ordinary, dressed humbly, with a crooked crown on his head and carrying something like a shepherd's staff in his right hand. In another way, there was something so compelling about the storyteller that it was difficult to take your eyes off of him. Perhaps it was a kind of lightness that drew people to him. No one could quite put their finger on it, but it almost seemed like he was from another world. In any case, the stories he told were amazing. They were about kings and paupers, thieves and helpers, wheat and tares, camels, bread, coins, lamps, fig trees and vineyards, and yes, lost sheep and goats. The one story some people already seemed to know was about the time that he had been killed out of love for all of them. You could still see scars on his body, yet there he was, clearly alive in front of them. More people came to listen and some people left. Over the course of many days, the group began to move along on either side of the watery grass. The storyteller stayed with them and everyone had a chance to walk and talk with him. Days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into years, for some turned into a lifetime. The river actually became a river. At first, little footpaths were all that was needed to cross from one side to the other. Gradually, bridges were built so people wouldn't get soaked as they went back from one back and forth between the light side and the, hmm, what to call the other side. For a while, they laughed and called it the side that is cloudy with a touch of gray, but eventually they shortened that to ash. That worked. The most interesting thing, though, was that there was a curtain of water in the middle of the river. It was quite high. When you passed through the curtain of water from light into ash, it felt kind of coldish and prickly. The discomfort was brief, but nevertheless, you felt it. Coming from ash to light, the water was warm and refreshing, strengthening somehow. You almost wanted to go back and pass through it again. Some of the children did that quite a few times, and it made the storyteller laugh. The people who made their homes on the light side of the river had a sort of glow about them. Actually, they seemed to have some of that quality the storyteller had. What was it exactly? They formed a habit of gathering into groups of all different sizes about every seven days or so and literally loved on the storyteller. Those times were like gatherings of little lights becoming one brighter light. That light lasted in some of them for a really long time. Well, I mean, they stayed quite bright. And even for those whose lights became dimmer, the glow was still there. The people who tended to camp or build homes on the ash side of the river didn't have any of those kinds of regular gatherings. I'm not saying they didn't get together. Of course they did. It just didn't ignite any light in them. This was noticeable to the people on both sides of the river, but the ash dwellers were pretty glittery, and even more so when they got together, so maybe that made up for it. 
Another very noticeable difference was how the dwellers on the light side would go out of their way to help one another. Whether someone was sick or hungry or hurt or thirsty, they'd be right there in the time of need. Occasionally, one of the light dwellers would seem to get lost or caught up with things on the ash side of the river. Pretty soon, a light dweller would be over there looking for them. But whether they were helping one another on the light side or the ash side, the storyteller was always with them. Now, you might ask how that was possible with so many people, and I can't answer that. It's just the way it was. Now, certainly the ash dwellers did help one another, and sometimes that did take care of whatever was wrong for a person, at least at a visible level. And yet, the deeper need, the light that lightened those who lived on the light side, could not be given. Sometimes a light dweller would cross over to the ash side and plead and cry over the one in need. And sometimes the hurting one would get up and go with the light dweller and the storyteller over the bridge through the curtain of water to the light side. There were leaders who organized help on both sides of the river. Many times, charismatic leaders on the ash side would start carrying on about how good they were and how they could really make a difference when things went wrong and people were hurt and abused. And sometimes they gathered quite a following. Yet, when all was said and done, whatever they did seemed to make very little perceivable difference. In fact, some people said things never got any better. If anything, they got worse. The leaders who emerged on the light side of the river had one thing in common. They deferred to the storyteller. They seemed to understand that any of the ways they could be of help to others were that much better if the storyteller was involved. All in all, life went on with the light dwellers increasingly doing like the storyteller, seeking out those who were lost, helping one another in times of grief, grief and loss, and stepping in when people were being treated unjustly, basically living out of the kinds of stories the storyteller told them and becoming more and more like him. The ash dwellers increasingly paid attention to what they most wanted. They got powerful and rich and I suppose you could say sexy. Nevertheless, their side of the river was quite a bit darker when you passed to that side and colder. Gradually, some people moved further and further away from the river, although really it was difficult to understand why they would do that, because the further from the river they moved, the closer they drew to a peculiar dark thick cloud that seemed to rise from the ground at the foot of a mountain range. Once in a while, the cloud parted, and they'd get a glimpse of a glittery, almost metallic and definitely foreboding structure behind it. On the other hand, as people on the light side moved away from the river, many of them grew brighter. They too were moving toward a cloud on their side of the river, but the cloud was billowy and glowing. What occasionally shone through if the cloud parted looked golden and inviting. 
Was it a city of some sort? Could be. One thing was true. The contrasts between the two sides of the river had become quite significant. The way people treated one another on the light side was so desirable, it was difficult to even imagine why one would not choose to live there. While on the ash side, you might just as well change the name to the side that is wicked with more than a touch of violence. The light dwellers began to refer to it as the vile side. Those light dwellers whose inner glow was the brightest spent more and more time over there seeking the lost, helping those in need, and extolling the joys of living on the light side. I'm sorry to say, sometimes they were attacked and reviled. Beneath it all, on both sides of the river, there were occasional rumblings. As time went on and the contrasts grew, the rumblings increased and became more severe. Some people expressed alarm, but most people barely noticed. Until one day and suddenly everything changed. There were loud trumpet blasts. The river fell and a chasm opened and all the bridges collapsed. People who'd been lost in death on both sides of the river were suddenly among them again. On the light side, the light dwellers who'd labored to bring to the ashy vile side, to bring light to the ashy vile side, were suddenly back among the dwellers on the light side. On both sides, all, all people fell to their knees as the storyteller himself, seated on a kingly throne, gazed upon them from the glowing heights of a huge city, no longer hidden behind the billowy cloud. All was silent for a long time. Then again, suddenly, on the vile side of the river, confusion reigned. Even while choking words expressed worship of the shepherd king, the people began to crawl and then get to their feet and run toward the darkness and the metallic city, pushing and shoving to get away from the light. I won't tell you the things that came out of their mouths, for they truly were vile. As impossible as it seems, they really wanted nothing to do with the light. The curtain of water was now opaque. On the light side, the river flowed from the throne of the king through the city, carrying life and bubbling joy in its currents. But if one could have seen to the other side, one could also have seen a flow from the metallic heights of the mountains, but it was full of sludge, stink, and death, flowing into a chasm of cold fire. The people seemed relieved to be rid of the influence of the storyteller and the light dwellers. They did not see the people on the light side as they began to sing and dance and shout and laugh, slipping and sliding and running and leaping toward the golden city. The glory of the shepherd king filled them and shone forth from them all in dazzling beauty. 
This was what they had always longed for. This was the way they'd always imagined life could be. And now it was. The ways they understood and loved one another, the ways they worked and played together, were otherworldly. They truly were. Competition really was all in fun, and no one was hurt. They created and planted and seeded and sowed and watched things grow and develop with no worries for self and with freedom to delight in the gifts of others. Who could even have imagined? And the king, the storyteller who'd been with them all along, tears of joy for such a loving presence, tears of gratitude to the one whose story of suffering and death for this very life, for their sakes. Well, once again, they were on their knees in deep love and worship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.